If you got your Bibles, Mark chapter 14, as we are where we are today, we're uh, almost done with this book of Mark. After today, we've got two more weeks and two more chapters uh, to get through as we've been journeying on this discovery of who Jesus is and uh, how he impacts our lives. I love the fact that we're culminating this around our Christmas season uh, because it is where we're most often introduced to Jesus is around Christmas. We talk about his birth and his introduction into the world, but it's great to be culminating this study uh, during a time that we are not just introduced to him, but introduced to the true impact of his work and how it's had lasting impact beyond just the 33 years that he spent here, that it is still challenging and changing us today. And so as we go through Mark 14, we are focusing on these extraordinary stories that the last few weeks and last few days of Jesus' life, this moment, his last moments on earth is arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. And uh, if we look back over the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus come in and he, he rode a donkey beautifully into the city and the, cheer, the crowd cheered Hosanna, praising him as welcoming him as he came into the city and to the temple. The next day he came in and he cursed a fig tree. He was upset. He had a chip on his shoulder and he came in and turned the tables of the, the temple over. And then the, the next time we see Jesus, he's having this deep conversations back and forth with some of the enemies of his kingdom that were in the religious elite at the time. And he answers them beautifully and lays out a pathway of who he is and what he's about. And now we come uh, to 14, which is a pivotal moment in the life and times of Jesus. In the first 13 chapters, as we see Jesus, he has been amassing this amazing following. Everywhere he went, great crowds of people came out to see him. They brought the sick and diseased to be touched by him. Many committed to follow him wherever he went. And there were even 12 followers who he called his deep disciples. They were his closest friends, those that followed him everywhere, did whatever he did. But as we enter chapter 14, we're at a tipping point of the story with Jesus and his followers. At the beginning of this chapter, we find Jesus having two memorable and meaningful moments with some of his followers, those closest to him. But by the end of this chapter, we're going to find Jesus alone. He'll be betrayed, denied, deserted, and without a single friend. In the span of just a few hours, the circumstances of Jesus' life are going to be so altered that those closest to him will abandon him and trade their relationship with him for their own safety and security. They'll trade one thing for another and come up empty. I don't know about you, but if I trade with somebody, I typically like to come out on the winning end of it, right? I mean, if you, if you follow baseball or other sports, like when it gets close to the trade deadline and some trade happens, there's always an article about who's the winner and who's the loser, like which team won, which team didn't win. I remember the very first car I ever had was called a Chevy Citation. All right. Anybody ever seen one of those? It looked like an egg on wheels is what it looked like. It was not a nice car. I think I paid $500 cash for it when we bought it, and I'm sure it probably was not worth that. As I began driving it, like I remember one day I was driving home. I was coming down, and where I lived, uh, we kind of went downhill, and a street circled back to itself. It kind of made a big six. And we were coming, I was coming home one day, my little Chevy Citation, and I hit the brakes, and the brakes went straight to the floor. And the car was not stopping. And I'm coming downhill, and I pass my house and kind of wave and honk at my mom and dad as I go by. I was like, that might be the last time I see this house because I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to stop. I knew I was coming to a dead end, and I'm pumping the brakes, 
pulling the emergency brake. We're not slowing down. And by God's grace, as I was coming to that intersection, we finally came to a stop and the brakes kicked in. I got home and I told my mom and dad what had happened. And my dad said, let's get in the car. We're going to go trade this car in. And uh, as we get there, I'm like, please, please brakes work when they come to inspect the car. And sure enough, they did. And here was the amazing thing. When we traded it in, I can remember this day, they gave us $750 of credit for it. Like, I got the better deal out of this than what I got more than I even paid for. But these disciples, these followers of Jesus, traded something of incredible value and really got nothing in return. And that's what we're going to see today. What I want us to do today is take a look at what drove Jesus' followers to betray, deny, and abandon him and how see if we can learn to avoid some of those same traps. And then I want us to close by reading and experiencing one of the memorable and meaningful moments that Jesus shared with his disciples as a way of providing hope for them, even though he knew they were going to be walking into a time of discouragement. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 14, and it's going to jump around a little bit so we can kind of get the full gauge of this story. I'm going to start reading Mark 14, 3 through 11, and then jump ahead through 43 to 45, and we're going to look at the, a character that we're all kind of aware of. His name is Judas. Mark, 3, Mark 14, 3 says this. While he was in Bethany talking about Jesus, he was reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, made of pure nard, She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those presents were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She had done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always be with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured the perfume on my body before to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Skip down to verse 43, and we see the culmination of this story. Just as he, he's talking about Jesus again, was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him and with a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent with the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Think back to this story for a minute. We just read, why, why do you think Jesus, Judas went to the chief priest to set up this betrayal of Jesus. We, we probably all heard this story. The, the name Judas is probably not the first time you've heard this name. It, it is synonymous with somebody who is a traitor, who betrays people. You know, you don't meet many kids named Judas today. And that, that's not a taught name that, that people use. It's, it has a stigma attached to it. But if you ever stop to think about why he did this, you know, I, I don't think it was because he didn't believe that Jesus was, was who he said he was. He'd been around this man and seen countless miracles and experienced the wisdom of Jesus in very intimate situations and settings. I think Judas did this because he didn't like the direction Jesus was taking the organization. Right? He had a different agenda in mind. He had a competing agenda. 
This incident with this woman of wasting this perfume put Judas over the edge. He was in this for the power, the glory, the fame, the riches, and Jesus seemed not to care about any of that. When I say competing agenda, here's what I mean. It's any personal desire that elevates our own worth and wisdom and diminishes the value and worth of others, including Jesus. It's anything that desire that I have or worth that I have that I elevate above the desires and worth of Jesus. I imagine just a few days before when the crowds were chanting Hosanna to Judas, Judas was like, yes, this is it. It's about to happen. Jesus is going to take over. I'm going to be the treasurer for all of this country. I'm, it's going to be amazing. He was wanting it. And then Jesus simply turns away and walks from the, away from the crowd. And Jesus chose a different path. Then they come into the temple the next day. And instead of taking advantage of the situation and working with the money changers and maybe working out a deal and finding a way for them to profit, Jesus turns it up the tables and throws over the system. And Judas probably looked at this and saw a missed opportunity. And now when this frivolous woman comes and wastes expensive perfume to anoint Judas, to anoint Jesus, Jesus, Judas saw this as a waste of money. Money that he could have taken as his own personal share of since he was their treasurer and a thief, the Bible tells us. Judas saw this as lost revenue, lost opportunity, and he would have done things differently. Truth is, I don't fully know what was really in Judas's heart in that moment when he finally decided to betray Jesus. But I do know who he is. I do know that, that he did believe that he was acting out of something that would elevate him and set up his kingdom, what was best for him. He was kind of pulling a coup d'etat, kind of wanting to overthrow Jesus and maybe set himself up as the leader of this organization. He wasn't just delivering Jesus. He was delivering this movement to the chief priests and elders. And surely he would be rewarded with not just money, but a position of power. Jesus would either have to show up and finally let everyone know who he is or be exposed as a fraud and unworthy to lead this group. And this is where we have to ask, how did Judas get here? How do we get to that point? How did Jesus get to the point that not only because he, st- I don't think he got there because he stopped following Jesus or stopped listening to Jesus. He got to this point because he stopped trusting Jesus. He stopped trusting his ways. When you and I have a competing agenda with leaders in our lives and even with Jesus, it is because we have come to the conclusion that if I were in charge, things would be better. They wouldn't just be different. They would be better. I should be the one in charge. We stop submitting and we start sowing then seeds of discord, dishonor, and disunity. I can tell you, every church I've served in before when I was not the head pastor, there were times that I would go, you know what? I could do it better than that guy. <laughs> like, I mean, what is he thinking? I mean, I'm sitting there at the second, third, fourth chair deep, and I'm like, what is that guy doing? Can I tell you, the moment I stepped into like the lead pastor role, my respect level for every pastor I ever served at before went way up because I understood the difference in that moment of leading. It's easier to lead and have this competing agenda when there's things you don't have to worry about, when there's pieces of the puzzle that you don't fully see, when there's opportunity you don't understand that, that, that Jesus does. 
You see, Jesus had a bigger agenda than power and wealth and riches and influence. His agenda was the restoration of mankind to their creator. A much more meaningful and bigger agenda, but Judas didn't see it. And there are certain thoughts that start coming into our heart and our minds when we start having this competing agenda. And the first one says that we start viewing others as irrelevant. We start saying, no, I'm not sure he really understands what's going on. And we start to think that others are out of touch. No one sees things the way I do. No one's as wise as I do. I don't have the insight that I have. I'm the one that really knows what's going on. And then that, we start to view other people as irrational. We start seeing decisions they make and we go, you know, I don't, I don't think I would have done it that way. And I don't think he values me the way that I should be valued. Like he didn't ask my input. That nobody asked me my input on that decision. And we start to think that others are acting irrationally. And then it leads us to a point of viewing others as ignorant. I could do this better. This person has no clue. And we start to view our, ourselves as wise and others, even including Jesus, as ignorant. When Jesus doesn't do things the way we want, when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, we don't doesn't increase our faith when we have a competing agenda we actually start to lose faith and the key idea that i want you to understand is if you're going to overcome a competing agenda it will take fully submitting ourselves to the lordship of jesus christ it will take a heart of submission Now that's an easy word to type and put in notes it's a very hard word to live submission i don't know about you but i typically don't wake up in the morning and go how can i live a life of submission today. Like at the end of my day, I want to be characterized as a submissive person. That is not the culture we live in. It's not the city we live in. It's not how you probably get ahead in your job or or other things that you deal with. But the truth is this. In our relationship with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for us to fully experience the restoration, the hope, and the genuine love that he wants us to experience, it takes submission. It does take Every morning, waking up and intentionally saying, Today, Lord, I submit my day to you. Submit my heart to you. I give you all that I am. Wherever you want to take me, I'll trust you. Don't, I don't want to be like Judas. I don't want to lose my trust in you. I don't want to stop trusting you. I want to follow you. Judas had a competing agenda that must be overcome by submitting ourselves to Christ. The second story we're going to learn about is about Peter. You know Peter as well. And so let's look at Mark 14, 26 through 31, and, uh, and see what this story unfolds for, for Peter. So they had just had the, the Lord's Supper. They had just had a time together. And it says in verse 26, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter declared, like he always does, if you all fall, if, even if they all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then all the others said the same thing. And then if you jump down to verse 66, I'm not going to read it, but you know the story. Peter standing outside away from where Jesus is, and he denies Jesus three times over the course of an evening, and then the rooster crows, and he is overwhelmed with guilt. Peter has always been one of my favorite characters 
from the gospel stories. He is passionate. He usually picks up things quicker than the other disciples do. He's willing to give up anything, give anything a shot once. And he walks on water. He tries to go heal people when Jesus says to go heal people. But yet in the midst of all this energy that Peter puts into following Jesus, there's a glaring issue that comes to the surface in this key moment. I think Peter eventually denied Jesus, not because he was a coward. He had already proven that with the sword, that he was not a coward. I don't think it was because he doubted Jesus. He was the first to call him Messiah. I think the denial of Jesus boils down to one simple truth. Peter had an overconfident spirit. And when you and I are overconfident, we become blind to traps and obstacles that we could easily overcome otherwise because we start looking to ourselves instead of looking around us and to God to lead us. An overconfident spirit is this. It's any personal dependence that undermines our dependence upon anything else, including Jesus. When we start looking to ourselves is the only true source of truth and confidence. Just us. I mean, I'll take a little advice from this person or that person. I'll, I'll say I'll pray about it. But the truth is, when it comes down to it, an overconfident spirit says, I'm the wisest one in the room. I'm the smartest one. Look at what Peter tells Jesus at the Mount of Olives. When Jesus says that everyone else would fall away from him that evening, Peter gets upset and he rebukes Jesus and claims that he would die for Jesus before he would deny him. Peter kind of has this bipolar personality, doesn't he? I mean, he has these incredible highs and then these experiences the lowest of lows. One minute he's drawing a sword, fighting for Jesus, cutting off the ear of the soldier, and in just a few hours he's hiding from a servant girl who says, weren't you with him? One minute he's yelling at Jesus and rebuking Jesus for, for saying that he's not committed enough to him to then in just a few moments denying the fact that he ever knew Jesus. One minute he is throwing the other disciples under the bus and saying, these guys may deny you, but I never will, to then in just a couple hours calling down curses on himself and totally disconnecting himself from Jesus. Peter had all the confidence in the world. He just had it misplaced. It was not placed in the right area. Instead of listening to Jesus and trying to learn and understand, he wanted to prove Jesus wrong. How did Peter get here? How do we get here? Peter got to the point of, not because he slowly stopped hanging around Jesus, not because he had kind of eased out of the relationship. He got to this point because he stopped seeking Jesus for truth and wisdom and started trying to prove himself to Jesus. Trying to prove himself. When you and I start having an overconfident spirit, we have come to the conclusion that I don't need to grow anymore. I'm done. I've got it all figured out. I've learned everything that I need to know, and now I just need a chance to prove myself, to make God and others believe in me. We think that our worth is found in how we prove ourselves to God instead of having faith in God. And when we do this, certain things start to pop up in our life. And the first one is we become adamant. I can, we start telling ourselves, I can do anything if I put my mind to it. There's nothing I can't do. Can I tell you that is not true? It's just not true. I've told you this before, like growing up, I had an idea of being, you know, an NBA basketball player. I do not have and obtain, cannot obtain the skills to go out and play. I could practice every day, nonstop. And maybe if I got in a game one day, I might could shoot and make a basket, but I am not 
ever going to play in the NBA. There are things that we cannot accomplish. But we become adamant, even in our spiritual life, is like, I can do that. I can save the world. I can reach everybody in my workplace for Christ. I'm going to do it to prove Jesus how serious I am. It doesn't mean that we don't try to reach out. It doesn't mean that we don't follow the the promptings of God in our life, but we get so adamant that we got to prove ourselves that we stop placing our faith in Christ. And when we do this, then we become arrogant. We start thinking I'm better and stronger and more committed than anybody else. We start looking around a room like this and go, yeah, these people are nice, but I'm the true spiritual giant in the room. Like it's the way Peter did with the other disciples. These guys, yeah, I could see them denying you, but not me. I'm not going to do it. And that's the way we get in our lives. We get so arrogant that we think we can never fail, but everybody else could. And when we do this, we end up alone. We end up alone. We start thinking, I don't need anybody's help. And it make, if I do, it makes me look weak. And we start to view others as a hindrance instead of a help. And we start to isolate ourselves from people who care from us and from the God who created us. We end up alone. This story, Peter ended up alone. He walked away from Jesus. He got confronted. He denied. And when the rooster crowed, he found himself alone and empty because of his arrogance and his adamant spirit that he could not mess up. The only way you and I overcome an overconfident spirit is to do this, is to place our full faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Not in myself, not even in our church, but in Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. And again, this is a difficult thing because we wake up in the morning driven saying, what can I do today instead of saying, what can Christ do for me and through me? We want to prove ourselves. Today, I want to prove myself to you, God. Instead of trying to prove yourself would you just follow and allow Christ to work through you? The last one we'll look at is this. And it's Mark 14, 46 through 51. They've come to arrest Jesus. It's after Judas has denied him. This is before Peter denies him. But it's 14, verse 46 through 51, and it says this. Then the men who had been sent seized Jesus, and they arrested him. The one of those standing near drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That was Peter. And Jesus said, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. I love that verse 51 and 52 are in there. Like, it's just a, like I say, can I tell you that if, uh, what we best understand, that was probably Mark. And this is why he says, there was a young man. He didn't say Mark. Like, he didn't identify himself. Like, I was following Jesus from a distance, and somebody ripped my clothes off, and I was in the streets naked, and I had to run away. All right, that's, but he puts this detail in there, because what he's saying is like, at this moment, everybody leaves Jesus. Everybody. Nobody's even hiding in the bushes anymore, seeing what's going on. They have all deserted him. These guys had been with Jesus for three years. They had seen him do amazing miracles beyond explanation. They had seen Jesus deal with the high priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees before and come out 
on top. But when he said these words, but that the scripture must be fulfilled, they knew there was something different about this moment. And in their minds, Jesus was giving up. In that moment, instead of following along behind him, supporting him in his moment of need, they let another arching emotion fill their hearts, and it was fear. They developed a fearful heart. A fearful heart is this. It is when my personal protection becomes more important than my personal relationship with Christ. I become more worried about protecting myself, and that's what happened. A fearful heart will always cause you to make decisions that you don't normally make. It will cause you to act in ways you don't normally act. It will cause you to use the rational as irrational, and the irrational as rational and make us act without wisdom. And that's exactly what happened to the disciples. This main group of them, they, they fled immediately fearful that they would get arrested. Fear made them run, and they ran in the wrong direction. How did they get here? I don't think they got here again because they were cowards or they had given up. They got this point because they stopped believing that Jesus could overcome their fear and anxieties. When you and I start having a fearful heart, we come to the conclusion that my problems are bigger than God. My anxiety is more powerful than Jesus. My fear is more potent than my faith. And we lose hope in all things. Certain things start to pop up in our life when we do this. And the first is we become discouraged. And we start saying things like this. Following Jesus shouldn't be this hard or this painful. Right? I, I, I got in this for the good stuff. Not the bad stuff. And we think following Jesus should remove all of our problems and pain instead of sustaining us through them. And then we become disillusioned. We say, you know, Jesus didn't solve my problems the way I wanted him to in the past, so he's not going to do it in the future. And we become disillusioned. If Jesus doesn't work the way we want, then we think he isn't working at all, which then leads us to become disheartened. I'm fearful of my future because I don't see a way through it. And I don't think Jesus is going to come through. If we focus on our problems and our pain only, our future will go cloudy, grow cloudy and dim. The only way to overcome a fearful heart is to place our full hope in the Lordship of Christ. Not hope in an organization, not even hope in a specific answer to a prayer, not hope in a healing or deliverance. It is hope in Christ, that no matter what pain I'm feeling, no matter what trial I'm walking through, no matter what circumstance I'm facing, I can maintain hope through it, even though I may not be able to avoid it. The amazing thing is this, as the world will close, none of these, the betrayal, the denial, or the desertion stopped Jesus from persisting on in his mission. Think about that. Even as those closest to Jesus abandoned and deserted him, he did not abandon or desert them. How do you typically respond when somebody disappoints you, abandons you, rejects you, denies you, or betrays you? Maybe, maybe you're a bigger man than I am, but I don't typically respond with a willingness to sacrifice and give up everything for restoration and healing in the relationship. We typically respond with anger, strife, bitterness, resentment. We hold grudges instead of making peace. We repay evil with evil instead of with kindness and grace. We want others to experience the same level of pain I have instead of finding ways to allow forgiveness to flourish. But Jesus did the exact opposite. 
in the moment of his greatest relational pain, he persisted in his goal of bringing the kingdom of God to mankind, the hope of salvation to all people. It is in this moment when he is alone, deserted, betrayed, and denied that the peace and hope that Jesus had been talking about will go on full display. From, from up until that point, much of it had been words, small demonstrations, but now all of his teaching, all of this hope, all of this peace is now on full display as he is left alone. This is the moment the kingdom of God really begins to be unveiled. The kingdom is revealed not because of anything Jesus' followers did for him. Instead, it is revealed when Jesus displays the goodness and graciousness of God in spite of what his followers did to him. Jesus knew all of this was coming. He knew it at the beginning of the chapter. He knew when they were having these great... He knew when he was coming in and they were chanting Hosanna. He knew this was coming. But instead of getting angry with his followers and... He gave them a moment to remember before all of this got started. They shared a meal together. It was more than just a dinner, more than even a Passover dinner. It was a moment to remember, for them to look back on after they had deserted him, denied him, and betrayed him, that they could look back on and draw hope and faith from. It was a moment that would lead them back to submission to him, their Lord and Savior. Look at the story, Mark fourteen twenty two through 24, the Lord's table. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body, broken for you, given to you, hope for you. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. This was him pouring out his blood to make peace, hope and peace. The first two Sundays of the Advent is what he was pouring out with his body and his blood. My question for you today is this. The simple question is this. Where are you abandoning Jesus? But here's the deeper and bigger question, more important question. Where do you need to remember that Jesus has not abandoned you? Because I'll be honest with you, we're all going to make the mistakes of the disciples of Peter and Judas. I hope that as I grow in my faith, I make them less and less. But what I've constantly got to remember is this, is that no matter what I do, no matter what mistake I make, Jesus does not abandon me. Today we have a chance to remember who Jesus is, the hope and the peace that he has given to all of us if we submit our lives to him. Today, Remember that even if you betray, deny, and desert Jesus, he will not repay it in kind, but will repay you with kindness, with love, with gentleness, and forgiveness. In just a moment, we're going to share a time at the table together, a time to remember that we are not abandoned by Jesus. No matter where you are in your faith journey, Jesus has not abandoned you. The way we experience the table together, this is designed for those that have come to a point of submitting their life to Christ and a walking in a faith journey with him. And scripture teaches us we should come to the table with, with open and clean hearts, not holding resentment toward others, not being angry toward God and with unrepentant sin in our life. But it says also to come to the table joyously and out of remembrance and out of excitement. And so today I want to invite you, if you've not taken 
uh, communion with us before. The way we do it in just a minute, I'll pray. And then you're welcome to come to the table as family and friends and share this moment. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and take it. Say a prayer with one another. And do this as a family together. Do this. Maybe you need to do it alone. Maybe you need a time of repentance in your life, and you need to experience it in that moment. But would you use this as a remembrance of the fact when you take this body and bread, the hope and the peace of Christ, remember that he has not abandoned you, even when we abandon him. Let's pray together. Father, take this moment as a time of remembrance in our lives. Draw our hearts and souls back to you to remind us that you are there even when we fall, even when we come up short, even when we intentionally turn our backs on you, you persist in your mission and you persist in calling us to repentance and to connection and restoration. God, may this time of remembrance this morning remind us that we are not abandoned by you. In Jesus' name we pray.